0: Thanks, Andrew. I'm just going to pray. jump in? Uh, Lord, thank you so much that you speak to us. Uh, Thank you that you give us rituals and rhythms, uh, like this supper that we're going to chat about today. Um, But we pray that you speak to us a little bit this morning. Amen. In case you don't know me, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here um, at SOMA. Uh, It's really cool to go out and look um, and see so many faces. I don't even really know. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing to be here. Today we're talking about the Lord's Supper. If you've been at Summer for a little bit, you know we've been um, talking through 1 Corinthians. Dave spoke on the Spirit a few weeks ago. We had a combined gathering where we spoke about the future. Last week Dave um, returned to 1 Corinthians and really pushed into the role of women and men in the church um, and what God has planned and designed for that. And this week we're talking about this thing called the Lord's Supper. Now, if you have been in church for a while, Or even if you haven't, you're probably familiar with it, but maybe you've never asked the question, what what is this this process? What is this ritual? What is this rhythm that we do? What is this thing that we sort of do, depending on the church sort of space you've been in, or even what you've seen from the outside, if you're not used to a church context? Why do Christians do this thing? It's a little bit odd. It's a little bit sort of strange. It's not something we have many parallels with in our society. We, We take... Um, juice or wine, and we sip it, and we reflect, and then we take bread or chips or um, gluten-free bread. We have gluten-free here later, by the way. When we take this, and we, and we spend and we spend time reflecting, and we spend time thinking. I mean, what? Why? What is this thing? Even though the language is a little bit confusing. Um, some traditions call it the Holy Communion. If you come from, say, a Catholic background or high anglican background or even an anglican background holy communion others use the language more of a baptist tradition the lord's supper that's how it's described in the new testament other churches describe it that way i've even heard described as the love feast that's kind of really trendy Why, why do we do it why do we put so much importance on this thing This process, this ritual. It's an interesting conversation, isn't it? That's really what Paul's pushing into. Uh, As Andrew was reading, potentially you picked out a common theme. There's actually a word that's repeated all the way through Paul's letter. And all it really means is connection. Connection. He says it six or seven times. Connection, this word, this repeated phrase. It doesn't really come across in English heaps well. But the whole idea of the Lord's Supper is connection. Comes out in four ways. So how does it connect us? Well, the first point of connection that it that the Lord's Supper does for us, or Communion does for us, is it connects the present to the past. So Communion, the Lord's Supper, connects the present to the past. I'll just take us to verse twenty-three of the passage that was read out. For I receive these are the words of Paul. For I receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus in the night he was betrayed. I'll just stop us. So Paul is talking likely in around A.D., no one's 100% sure, probably A.D. 50-ish, probably 15, 20 years after the crucifixion of Christ. And what he does is he actually takes them back to a specific point of time. He actually takes them back to the night before Jesus was executed. And that was important in itself, because that wasn't just a random night. That fell on a night, if you read Luke's Gospel, which Paul is very likely quoting from, by the way, he was actually, this, this, this event was taking place at a thing called the Passover. Now, Passover in the Jewish history and tradition was a massive event. Again, it harkens to an event probably 1,500 years before, if you know your Bible, potentially you don't, where basically the Jews or the Israelites were, were imprisoned in Egypt. Um, the Pharaoh was abusing and taking advantage of them. God promised to redeem his people. A whole bunch of things happened. They came to the last straw. But God basically promised wipe out, and it's pretty hard and, and r- difficult to read, the first generation or the firstborn of every Egyptian family. And he said, if you want to escape this, if you want this wrath to pass over you, you'll have to paint the door frames in blood. And so that's what they did. And that's how the Egyptians, well, that's how the Israelites rather broke free of the Egyptians. They crossed the Red Sea. I'm sort of condensing a lot of facts and a lot of detail into a very short narrative here. But that Passover That Passover feast, and it was a feast. They killed a lamb, they ate the lamb, and then they used its blood to pass over the doorframe, paint the doorframe, was something they commemorated again and again and again. And the intention was that it grew and took a group of disparate people spread all over Egypt, different ethnicities likely, probably Semitic peoples, and made them into a people. It forged them and connected them. And that was a ritual and a routine that they practiced again and again and again. And that's exactly what we see in the first, first century with, the, with Jesus and his disciples. Interestingly enough, Jesus spoke, chose that time, well, this is the time it all happened, for him to have this Last Supper. And the links are pretty clear. The Passover, which was alluded to in the first instance in the Old Testament, is actually fulfilled in Jesus. This is the ultimate Passover Lamb, isn't it? And so when Jesus says, on the night he's betrayed, he took bread and ultimately sort of defines this Passover in a specific way. He's actually hearkening both to the past and he's saying this is going to define the people of God into the future. He's linking every Christian. And this is an idea and a practice that was supposed to be practiced by all Christians everywhere. And it was. If you read even the extra kind of material from this period you'll see that the Christians were known for doing this. This defined the early church. And Jesus says this in his teaching here. He wants them to repeat this whenever they eat or drink. So something that was going to link them to the past was going to tie them together here and was supposed to be repeated through the church into the future. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, we're going back to that night before Jesus was executed. But even before that, to when people... Well, the the various people groups that were in Egypt at the time were called together into the people of God. I don't know if you think of that and realise that when you take communion, when you take the bread or the the gluten-free snack or whatever it is, and the juice or the wine, that you're being connected to something that goes beyond your life back 2,000 years beyond even that. The very foundation and forming of the people of God. It connects... Today, what is the date? The 28th or whatever it is of January, 2024. Man, January's already gone. Isn't that crazy? To so all that's come before, connects the present to the past. I was trying to think of a helpful way to kind of illustrate this. A couple of years ago, I went to, um, to Europe, went to Scotland and England. Um, went through London, as you normally do. Got off at Heathrow. Didn't really like England all that much. I loved the football. But apart from that, it didn't really impress me. I must admit, though, a lot of my family is Scottish, particularly on my mum's side. I have strong ties to MacLean and Cameron clans, if that's what they are. Um, my mother's side is pretty much all Scottish. And I don't know if it was my imagination, you know, I don't know if it was indigestion or what, but I had this strange feeling getting off the planet at Edinburgh of just coming home. I can't explain it. It was surreal. Again, might have been my imagination. Don't put this in an essay or anything. People talk about some sort of, you know, like inherited memory or something, genetic memory. I don't want to push that too hard. But it was kind of surreal. I honestly felt this strange sense of belonging. And I felt that my whole time in Scotland. Think of that what you will. I don't know. As a link to what came before. It's a link to the generations That came before me, that resulted in me and my family, and my family to come. That's what communion does. It ties us, the present, this church here, this small community here, as well as the afternoon gathering, to to every Christian in in the history. Isn't that an incredible thing? Do you realise that, that connection? That tying to something so much bigger than ourselves? Connects us, the present, to the past. The second thing it does, it connects our hearts to God. It really got to focus in on some of the language. It's, it's really intimate language, quite graphic. Um, he's quoting again, I said this earlier, he's quoting Luke's gospel, likely, very, very likely. When Jesus spoke these words, he says, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, some people harken back to other passages, particularly in John's gospel, where they say, well, Jesus used quite graphic languages. He says, if you want to be saved, you need to drink my blood and eat my flesh. I don't think Jesus is being literal. But it sort of echoes some of the same sentiments, doesn't it? Interestingly enough, a lot of the Romans who knew Christians actually accused them of being cannibals. I don't know if you know that. And this is in the first century, not a recent thing. They, choose, they, they accuse Christians of being cannibals because they heard that Christians were doing this, drinking the blood and eating the flesh of Jesus. It's been understood in a couple of ways. Again, so many variations across the the sort of spread of church thinking and Christian history. But Let me just simplify them into two. So some people have understood this really literally. And so if you're a Roman Catholic or even have that background or a high Anglican or even a Lutheran, um, you probably think Oh, I'm going to use a big word. I hate using big words in preaching. There's a big word called transubstantiation. You don't need to know what that means. All it means, well, you do, because I'm going to tell you. But all it means is people think in some weird way, when you take the bread and, and the wine or the juice, that it turns into the actual blood and flesh of Jesus. Don't ask me, and I don't mean to be disrespectful. Please don't hear me say that. I'm not trying to make fun of anyone. But in some way, it, it transforms in that way. So very literal understanding. Very literal. And then we have people more in kind of the reformed tradition, of which we're a part, by the way, who understand this purely as symbolic. Okay, so when we take the, the wine and when we take the bread, it's really just us nailing our, our flags to the mast, saying, I'm a Christian. Nothing more. There's nothing spiritual going on. It's just a public declaration of what I believe. Now, I sit somewhere in the middle of that. I think there is something spiritual... Going on. Notice what he says in verse twenty eight. He says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they go through this process. So there's supposed to be an internal examination, they supposed to be a reflection of what's happening internally. I would even use the word spiritually. so It's supposed to have a spiritual aspect. And while we're not supposed to take it literally, there is an intensity towards Jesus' language here. This 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 is my body, he's holding the bread, which is for you, and it's broken. This is my blood, the new covenant poured out for you. Obviously, it's not literal, but there's an intimacy there. And have you ever ever asked yourself why Jesus didn't give them a mantra? Why didn't he give them a slogan or a phrase? That comes in other parts of the Bible, by the way. Why did he give them this thing that was so tangible, that was to be repeated again and again and again, depending on how you understand this? Why? Why? He could have made his point in an abstract concept, and yet he gives them something simple. Most people drink some sort of substance. Well, everyone does, don't we? We all have to drink. We all have to eat. He's using very tangible, very um, low-bar, repeatable symbols that we're supposed to repeat and incorporate into our rhythms. Why? Well, it becomes real for us. People have done studies about abstract versus concrete concepts, what Jesus is doing is making something that's abstract into a concrete, repeatable principle and understanding, something that we can actually feel. And I've probably felt that in communion. When you take the bread and take the wine, it becomes real in some weird way. And the repetition's important. This is a repeated process. Repetition's important for all of us as we think and and reflect. Um, I, I I had a little brother... Just to drive this home, my little brother, who was a... Well, I still have a little brother. Um, he's a cricket player. He used to be a really good cricket player. Um, I didn't really pay much attention. I wasn't that interested. But he played at quite a high level. I think he played at some high school state level. Don't hold me to that. You can ask him. Like I said, cricket's not my really my game. Um, he was a batsman. That's what you do when you bat. You do that. Um, I remember when we, were, when we were kids, though, he had this funny practice. Apparently Don Bradman did something similar. That's where he got it from. We had one of those old-fashioned clothes hoists, clothes lines. You know the ones with the like poke in the middle and it spread out? Do you know what I'm trying to talk about? It was made of steel or whatever it's made of. That was in the days when you could afford a backyard. Um, and, and what he did was he got a cricket ball, an old cricket ball, and he screwed a hole in it and he tied it to one corner of the clothesline. And for hours and hours, I, I remember the sound quite well. Just he'd go out with, these, with, with, a, with a stump, not a bat, but a stump, and just, and it'd sort of swing back and forth and swing back and forth and swing back and forth. Hours he would do this. Now, obviously, it made him a pretty good cricketer. But that repetition. Now, Lucas, that's his name. He could have read books on cricket. He could have watched docos on cricket. He could have chatted about cricket. All those things are good and important. But it's not until you experience it, right, that it becomes real. I feel like the Lord's Supper works in a really similar way. This almost experiential element to it it makes it deeper than just something that's purely symbolic. It connects us and it connects our hearts to God. This is the big clincher, I think, for us. It also connects individually, uh, individuals rather, to community. Now, Paul is super harsh in his language, right? At the start of it, I don't know if you picked it up when Andrew was reading, but you know, he says, you guys are meeting, you might as well not bother. I've got nothing good to say. Why? Because they were dis- disunified. They'd turned this thing, this sacred thing that had come down from Jesus himself and used it and made it basically a, a, a situation to get drunk. A very stratified society to look down on those who are poor to segregate the good portions of food and the good portions of wine for those who had money and the status of giving the dregs to those who were poor and divided the community. If you read through this passage, this idea of unification comes across all the way through. Um, I'm just going to pick up on six or seven examples. I'm just going to rattle them off. You can read them later if you like. So the first half of verse 18, he says, come together, this idea of being unified. Second half, he talks about the, the church um, that's a word called the ecclesia, the gathering, the people, gathered people of God. 19, amongst you, the gathered people, verse 20, come together. Verse 29, discerning the bodies, talking about discerning the people, the group, the gathering. This is the purpose of communion, it's supposed to bring people together. And yet, though using that very thing which was supposed to unify them and bring them together, to create disunity. Verse 22. Do you despise, look at his language, the church of God, the gathering of God, the ecclesia of God, by humiliating those who have nothing? Do you sin against the body? That's verse 27. There's divisions. There's separations amongst you. This is the antithesis, the exact opposite of not only what the Christian church is to be, but what this this ceremony, this rite, this this routine was supposed to embody. I think the challenge for us is do we have divisions amongst us? I'm not saying I've noticed anything. I'm not saying those things are super apparent to us. But you might know, even in your own heart, of, of conflict with someone in the church. Of, of some way in which you maybe just don't really associate someone of a different life stage or a different space or a different sort of, I don't know, zone of life. You don't associate with them. I did a talk um, a few months ago now on singleness. And what was so interesting were the chats I had afterwards, not so much on that specific issue, but on other issues where people, for various reasons, and I'm not gonna go into them, but just felt excluded. And And this is at SOMA. Just felt a little bit on the out. They just felt like they weren't in the in crowd. And so we can kind of categorise this and say, oh, this is for that church down the road. But the truth is, because we're all sinful people, we all have, to some degree or another, division in this church. You see how communion is supposed to push against that symbolically, spiritually, uh, tangibly, a powerful representation of how we're unified in Christ. Paul's not being accidental in his language, reminding them, unified, unified, come together, be together. Is that what our church looks like? This is what Paul says in Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, a huge division in the ancient world. Huge. They are together in Christ, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, one in Christ. What a powerful symbol and a mechanism by which that can be embodied amongst us. It also connects this life to the future. So let me just recap. Connects the present to the past, connects our hearts to God, connects individuals to community, and connects the, uh, this life or our lives to the future. A little sort of ideas sort of thrown in there at the end of, well, the end of his, his teaching on this. For, verse 26, For whenever you eat this bread... Drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does that mean? Well, this is all the way through 1 Corinthians. It's all the way through Dave's preaching and Stuart's preaching and people who have preached on this. This idea of the life that will come. The world beyond this, what we can see and hear and touch in this world. So communion is not just something for now. It's actually a declaration that, no, we're believing in the life beyond here. I don't know if you're a U2 fan. I love, I don't know if Bono's a Christian, he's a singer of U2, I don't know. He he doesn't answer to me. He he claims to be, I'm not sure. Um, But he has a beautiful phrase in one of his songs, it's off the Joshua Tree, just He says, and he's talking about this reality that Paul's talking about, when all the colors will bleed into one. Uh, That future hope where our bodies won't be getting old and breaking down we won't have division amongst us because we will all be unified perfectly and beautifully in Jesus. And all the things that are broken and messed up and sad, this side of heaven will be undone. I love this image of a feast. And that's really what communion is. That's really what the Lord's Supper is. That's really what the love feast is. It's a feast. And it ties up all of God's history with these people. It harkens back to that first Passover feast in Egypt three millennia ago, four millennia ago. It hearkens to this Passover feast that Jesus had with his disciples and he wants to be replicated amongst all the church. And it points to the great feast at the consummation of all things. It comes in Revelation 19, the great feast that symbolizes the, this amazing party that everyone in Christ we are part of. We celebrate that. What does Paul say? We proclaim that Again, it only makes sense if that you is the plural you. We do that as God's community together. Connection. What does the Lord's Supper do? What does communion do? What does the love feast do? It connects the present to the past. Connects our hearts to God. Connects individuals to community. Connects our lives to the age to come. We're going to have an opportunity to take the Lord's Supper, Communion, the Love Feast now um, as, uh, as the body. Um, I'm going to pray really quickly and then I'm going to ask us all to reflect. That's what Paul says. We should reflect on our hearts, reflect on what we're bringing to the table as we partake in this. So let me pray. Um, I might ask, well, maybe not. Um, we'll see how we go. Um, but let me pray. Uh, Lord, thank you so much uh, for this reminder um, of Communion. Uh, Yeah, the Lord's Supper, the the love feast. Thank you so much. That it's not just a symbolic thing, though. It is that. It's also a powerful movement of your spirit and and your truth in our hearts. I pray as we come to your table today that we don't just do it flippantly. We don't just do it as a routine. We don't just do it to appease what other people think of us or what we think they think of us. Help it to be a genuine um, process where we reflect on what you did for us, your death on the cross for us your blood poured out in our place your body broken for us help that to not become abstract but help become real and profound and true and we ask for these things in jesus name amen well i'm gonna invite dave up we're gonna do the communion over here the lord's what, what should i call it let's just call it the love feast eh? let's just go live <laughs> on. i'm trying not to say we're yeah anyway um In time, I'm going to ask us to spend maybe a minute or two just reflecting, examining our hearts as Paul teaches us. Then we'll make our way up around here in an ordered fashion, hopefully. Me and Dave will pass them out. um, And then we'll sing a couple of songs to wrap.